Let's turn together in the Holy Scriptures to the book of Acts, chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. We read together the first 22 verses of the chapter. And as they spake unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about five thousand. And it came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes, and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander and as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have ye done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the headstone of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they marveled, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And beholding the man which was healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle hath been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them, that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing was showed. We read God's word that far this morning. We consider together Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning, found in the back of your Psalter on page 8. 
Lord's Day 11, why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins. And likewise, because we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in any other. Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior, who seek their salvation and welfare of saints, of themselves, or anywhere else? They do not. For though they boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Deliverer and Savior. For one of these two things must be true, either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are currently considering the articles of the Apostles' Creed, which is divided into three sections on God the Father, on God the Son, and on God the Holy Spirit. We finished looking at the first part on God the Father, and this morning we begin to look at the second part on God the Son. Here we turn our attention to the second article of the Apostles' Creed in which we confess with the church of all ages, I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, our Lord. We join our hearts and our voices with Peter and John and the other apostles who, as we just read in Acts chapter 4, were captured in the temple, were brought before the Sanhedrin of the Jews, and in that very dangerous situation, nevertheless, confessed that they believed in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Together with them, we confess, I believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah promised of old. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father. I believe that Jesus is the Lord who has purchased me by his own blood. In the coming weeks, we're going to consider each of those names, Jesus, Christ, only begotten Son of God, and Lord. And this morning, we begin with the first, the name Jesus. The name Jesus is a very significant matter. Because this name is not just a sound that we speak with our mouths. It's not just a word by which we identify him and with which we address him and speak about him. But the name Jesus is powerful to save. We read about that in the chapter. And the context, Acts chapter 3, also speaks of that. Peter and John had been walking up into the temple through the beautiful gate of the temple on a certain day to pray, and they saw a man by the side of the road. He was lame or impotent, and he sat there by the gate of the temple day after day, holding out his hand, begging. Peter came up to him and said, 
Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up, and immediately his feet and ankle bones received strength. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that that lame man was healed. This name is powerful to save. Indeed, no other name has power to save than this name. So let's consider this name together under the theme, Believing in the Name of Jesus. Notice first, Jesus, the only Savior. Secondly, Jesus, the complete Savior. And thirdly, Jesus, the one in whom we believe. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Many and various answers have been given to that question through the ages. And in more modern times, the answers given to that question have been straying further and further from the truth as it is revealed in Scripture. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? A simple question. The Scripture answers that question from various angles. The Scripture answers the question about the identity of Jesus from a variety of perspectives. The Scripture comes at that question from the angle of his eternal divine person as the only begotten Son of God. It comes at this question from the angle of his conception and birth and life and death and resurrection as recorded in the Gospels in Scripture. Scripture comes at this question from the perspective of his messianic calling and office as it was prophesied in the Old Testament and as it was fulfilled in the New Testament. So from many different angles, Scripture answers the question, who was Jesus? Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism would have us approach this question from the perspective of his eternal divine sonship. Notice the question. Why is the Son of God called Jesus? We are coming at the question of who was Jesus from the perspective of the truth that he is the Son of God. He was the Son of God before he was Jesus. Before Jesus came into history, before Jesus appeared on the pages of Scripture, the Son of God existed from all eternity. The eternally begotten Son of the Father. And now the question is, why is this Son called Jesus? He was called Jesus throughout his life on this earth. He was called Jesus by father and mother, sister and brother, by publicans and sinners, by Pharisees and Sadducees, by scribes and elders, by women and men, friends and enemies. Everybody who knew him called him Jesus. Why did they call him Jesus? 
Well, because when he was eight days old, Joseph and Mary took him into the temple to be circumcised, and they gave him as his official name, the name Jesus. Luke 2, verse 21. But why did Joseph and Mary give him the name Jesus that day in the temple? Well, because before he was even born, an angel appeared unto Mary, the angel Gabriel in Nazareth, and announced to her that she would be the mother of the Savior, the Christ, and that she must give him the name Jesus. Luke 1, verse 31 And because later when Mary became pregnant and began to show that she was pregnant before she had come together with Joseph, an angel appeared to Joseph in a dream and told him, This child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and you must call his name Jesus. Matthew 1, verse 21. For he shall save his people from their sins. But why did the angel tell them to call his name Jesus? What are angels? Angels are messengers of God. Angels dwell in the presence of God. Angels receive from God a message and they bring that message to the earth. So who ultimately called his name Jesus? God. God decided from all eternity that his name would be Jesus. God told the angel to tell them to call him Jesus. And the name Jesus means Jehovah salvation. Jehovah saves. Why did God call his name Jesus? Because God would teach us who he is and what he has come into the world to do. God would teach us that Jesus is Jehovah God himself. Come into the world to save and deliver us from our sins. And that's the answer of the Heidelberg Catechism. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, that is, a Savior? Because he saveth us and delivereth us from our sins. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? You can ask anybody that question. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Who is this Jesus whose story is told in the scriptures, especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Answer, he is none other than Jehovah of hosts, the one true living God, who in the person of his Son has stepped down into the world and taken upon himself human flesh and blood, and he is the one and only Savior of sinners. That's who Jesus of Nazareth is. Jesus is not just a good teacher, as many say, if you ask them the question. They say, he was a wonderful teacher. He taught mankind many wonderful things. And it's true, he was a wonderful teacher, a rabbi of the greatest sort. He went throughout Galilee and Judea. Everywhere he went, he taught the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven He taught through parables and sermons and discourses and through personal interaction and conversation. He taught the Jews and the Gentiles. 
He taught in the synagogues and the temple, by the seaside and in the wilderness. He was a teacher. He is our greatest teacher who revealed to us the greatest mysteries of the world. But he's not just a teacher. He's not just a good example of holiness and love for us to follow. As others will say, if you ask them, who was Jesus of Nazareth? Oh, he was a wonderful example for us to follow. Oh, I love the example of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus about love for the neighbor, love for God. Indeed, he was. Everywhere he went, he performed many deeds of love and compassion. He lived a holy and godly life, spotless, sinless, righteous, a man of integrity and honesty. But he wasn't just a good example. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus is none other than Jehovah God himself come into the world and into our human nature to save and deliver us from our sins and from the eternal and dreadful punishment that we deserve for our sins, the punishment of everlasting hellfire, the punishment of everlasting death under the waves and billows of the wrath of God that we deserve. Jesus came into the world to save us and deliver us. Imagine yourself cast into the midst of a dark and raging sea. Cast into the midst of waves and billows tossing you up and casting you down. Darkness all about. There you float and there you are tossed to and fro at the mercy of the waves and the raging of the sea. Now if Jesus is there standing on the shore of the sea, beckoning to you, trying to teach you, trying to tell you things, trying to fill you with knowledge, telling you how to swim, teaching you about the sea, what good is he? What good is he if he is just a teacher? If he only fills our minds with knowledge, that cannot save us from the raging of the sea. Or imagine that Jesus dives into that raging sea to be with you there, and he comes alongside of you, and he shows you by his example how to swim, how to stroke with your arms and kick with your feet, and he swims to the shore and shows you there, follow my example and swim with all your might. Then what good is he? If he leaves us there in the raging sea, we who are weak, we who are sinful, Of course, he who is holy and righteous, he who is God himself, of course he can swim out of the raging sea. But what about us? If he leaves us there to fend for ourselves, he is not just a teacher, not just an example. He's a savior. He dove into the raging sea and he took a hold of us. He came to rescue us. He came to bring us out of the raging sea. He came to bring us safe to the shore of eternity and to give us everlasting life. He came to save and deliver us, weak, doomed sinners. 
who deserve to drown under the waves of God's wrath. That's why his name is Jesus. Jesus is the only Savior. When Peter and John were brought before the rulers of the Jews, before the mighty men of Jerusalem, they were asked this question. By what power or by what name have ye done this? The rulers of the Jews were referring to the miracle that they had done in the healing of the lame man by the gate of the temple. The man who everybody knew was unable to walk, who now was up, jumping, leaping, walking, and standing before them. They said, by what power or by what name have ye done this? And Peter confessed, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. That was his testimony to the Jews that day. It was by the name of Jesus that this man was saved, and that is the only name There is no other name by which we can or must be saved under heaven. Not the name of Moses, whom you follow, whose laws you seek to obey. Not the name of Joshua, who led Israel into the promised land through the Jordan River and destroyed the Canaanites. Not the name of David. Not the name of the Virgin Mary. Not the name of Peter or Paul not the name of any other god or of any other prophet, not the name of Muhammad, not the name of Buddha. There is no other name under heaven among men that has the power to save. It's very important that we hear that, that we be reminded of that, because the spirit of the age in which we live here in Canada, United States, and all of Western civilization and more and more throughout the world, is a spirit of relativism. It is a spirit of inclusivism. It is a spirit that says all religions are just roads to the same place. All religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, Taoism, ancestor worship, all of these religions are just so many roads that lead to the same place. They all lead to heaven. They all lead to God. They all lead to salvation and eternal life. That's the spirit of our age. And if you go against that spirit, you will be ostracized. You will be hated and oppressed and persecuted. The idea that Peter sets forth in the chapter that we read, that there is no other name than the name of Jesus by which we must be saved is one of the most unpopular truths in the world today. I remember when I was a teenager 
working at a summer job with a man who was obviously swept away by the spirit of our age, that he said to me his personal belief that Christian missions ought never to happen, that Christians ought not to send missionaries into Africa, into the deep, dark places of the world, to try to convert them to the name of Jesus. Rather, we ought to celebrate their cultures. We ought to celebrate their religions. We ought to celebrate their beliefs. We ought to recognize that all of these religions, all of these beliefs, they're all good if they teach us how to live well. That's a lie. All religions do not lead to heaven. This is the urgency of our mission mandate to the world. Jesus told us to go into all the world into all the nations, and to preach his name before men as the one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And when we understand that the other religions of the world are not pathways that lead to heaven, but pathways that lead to hell, then that ought to fill us with a sense of urgency to send the gospel into all the world to send missionaries and to witness in our personal lives to our neighbors and to speak of the name of Jesus, the one Savior of sinners. Even when rulers threaten us, as they threatened Peter and John, saying to them, well, we don't know what to make of this miracle of the healing of the impotent man, but don't speak the name of Jesus anymore. Peter and John simply said to them, Whether it be right in your eyes to obey God rather than men, you judge. But we cannot but speak the things that we have seen and heard. Jesus is the only Savior. That's the teaching of the Catechism as well. And Jesus is a most wonderful Savior because he is a complete Savior. The Catechism goes on to say, one of these two things must be true. Either that Jesus is not a complete Savior, or that they who by a true faith receive this Savior must find all things in him necessary to their salvation. Either he is not a complete Savior, or he is. The second is the truth. He is a complete Savior, and therefore we ought to find in him all things necessary for our salvation. Notice three points of explanation that he is a complete Savior. First of all, Jesus completely accomplished salvation for us on the cross. In his address to the Sanhedrin, Peter boldly points out to them in verse 10 
Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. You crucified him, he says. And that's true. They crucified him. And we are also responsible for the act of crucifying the Son of God. Because in our sinful natures, we despise and reject him. Nevertheless, through that most wicked act of crucifying the Son of God, the Son of God himself willingly gave his life for us who crucified him. He willingly offered up himself to the Jews and the Romans to crucify him. Because through that act of crucifying him, he laid down his life for us as an atoning sacrifice to God to save us from our sins. And there was absolutely nothing faulty or deficient about the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It was a perfect and complete sacrifice. Because he who sacrificed himself was perfectly holy. He was sinless. He was righteous. And therefore he was not worthy of death himself. And being not worthy of death, he was able to take upon himself our sins and our iniquities who are worthy of death. And he was able to suffer that death for us on our behalf. And he was able also, because of his perfect righteousness, to love the Lord his God, even through his death on the cross. Being fully human, he was able to step into our place and to represent us. Because only a human may die for humans. Only a human may make satisfaction for humans. And so he became a human so that he could step into our place and represent us. And being fully divine in every respect. He was the one and only individual who was able to go under the waves and billows of God's wrath. To dive into the sea, the raging sea of God's indignation against our sins. And to swallow up that whole raging sea of wrath against our sins through his suffering on the cross. To pass through the portals of everlasting damnation and to suffer for all eternity in the moment of the cross, in the darkness of the cross. And in that moment, he fully, completely accomplished our salvation. That's a perfect sacrifice, a perfect atonement. And through his sacrifice and death, he has rescued us from the raging sea of our sin and the punishment we deserve. In the second place, Jesus is a complete Savior because he completely and perfectly applies to us the salvation that he has accomplished on the cross by the power of his word and spirit. There's nothing faulty and nothing deficient about the mighty grace of Jesus Christ 
by which He takes that salvation and applies it to us, gives it to us. Jesus applied that salvation to us when He took a hold of us and grafted us into Himself. When grafting us into Himself by an eternal bond, He caused His life to flow into us so that we were regenerated, quickened together with Christ, and we became alive. We who were dead, doomed, damned sinners, He grafted into Himself so that we became alive, free, righteous, and destined for eternal life. That was a perfect application of the grace of salvation, of regeneration, of union with Jesus. And furthermore, he applied that salvation to us when, through the preaching of the gospel, he called us with his own shepherd's voice, With his own mighty, powerful voice, he called out to us and by his Spirit worked deep in our hearts to awaken in us a true and living faith. So that hearing the call of Jesus in the Gospel, we believed in Jesus. We laid hold upon Jesus. We embraced him as our Lord and Savior our only Lord and Savior. As it is written in Romans 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. As he called out to us through the gospel and worked faith in our hearts, he justified us by that faith. Freely, fully, perfectly, he justified us. Graciously, He declared to us through that same gospel, I reckon you righteous by faith in me. I consider you righteous. I don't consider you guilty. I don't consider you a sinner. Although you have sinned many times, I forgive your sins. And you are righteous by faith. He applies that salvation to us too when by his Spirit, He sanctifies us more and more throughout our life so that by the power of the Word and Spirit of Jesus, we put off the old man. We put on the new man. We put off the sins which beset us and cleave to us, which we more and more hate. We flee from them and we put on holiness, righteousness, goodness, Love, gentleness, temperance. He sanctifies us so that we struggle against the lusts of the flesh and we crucify them. We smash our idols of pleasure and money and self against the rock of Jesus Christ. 
We gouge out our offensive right eye that looks lustfully at a woman who is not our wife. We tame our unruly tongue that speaks wickedly and rebelliously, hurtfully and boastfully. He sanctifies us so that we strive to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and mind and to love our neighbor as ourselves. He does that. Jesus the Savior, a complete Savior, applies that salvation to us. And thirdly, Jesus continues to apply that salvation to us until it is fully received. He finishes applying that salvation to us in the future. As Paul says in Philippians 1, He who hath begun a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He will not stop. He has begun that good work in us. He will continue to work it in us, to preserve it in us, to nurture it in us, to grow it in us, until it is finished. He will preserve in our hearts the incorruptible seed of regeneration through the troubles and trials, the temptations and falls, the fears and sorrows as we sail through the midst of the raging sea. He will carry us safe to the shore of heaven. He does not depend upon us for that preserving work of salvation. He does not depend upon us freely choosing to persevere. He does not depend upon us by our own free will, believing and continuing to believe and abide in him. But we depend upon him. We depend upon his preserving, saving grace to preserve that faith in our hearts, not only from day to day, but from moment to moment, from second to second. Jesus is the one who saves us by preserving that faith in our hearts. Until at last, he will save us from the lake of fire and brimstone in time to come. In Romans 5, verse 9, Paul says, much more than being now justified by his blood. If we are now justified by his blood, if he has saved us now, if he justifies me today, then much more we shall be saved from wrath through him. He's a complete Savior. From beginning to end, He performs the work of salvation. What a Savior. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful name is the name of Jesus. There's no name like it in all the world. What a privilege to declare that name of Jesus to the ends of the world. Therefore, Jesus is the one in whom we believe. That's what we're considering here. The second part 
of the Apostles' Creed, the second article of our Catholic Undoubted Christian Faith. This is your confession and mine. I believe in Jesus. I believe in him, the only Savior of sinners, the complete Savior of sinners. The Catechism asks you, Do such then believe in Jesus, the only Savior and Deliverer, who seek their welfare and salvation from saints? Who seek their welfare and salvation from themselves? Who seek their welfare and from salvation from anywhere else? Can we say about them that they believe in Jesus? And the answer that the Catechism gives to you is, they do not. For though they may boast of him in words, yet in deeds they deny Jesus, the only Savior. There are many people who boast of Jesus in words. I trust that you boast of him in words. I trust that you're not ashamed of Jesus, but rather that you boast of him. That is, with the Apostle Paul, you say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's boasting in the name of Jesus. Or, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. That is, in Jesus. If you want to boast, don't boast in yourself. Boast in Jesus. But among those who boast in the name of Jesus, there are some who deny him in their deeds. They boast of him in words, but they deny him in deeds. By their deeds, praying to the saints, putting their trust in the Virgin Mary, putting their trust in their own works, by their deeds, they reveal that they don't truly believe in Jesus as the only and complete Savior. There will be those who will say to him when he comes, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name have done many wonderful works? Matthew 7, verse 22. But Jesus says to us that he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Why will he say that to them? Why will he say, depart from me, ye that work iniquity? Because although they boasted of him in their words, they denied him in deeds, in their heart. They didn't truly put their trust in Jesus alone. Only those who by the electing, redeeming, saving grace of God put their trust in Jesus for all things necessary for salvation, have a true and living faith. And so the Catechism exhorts us this morning, the Gospel exhorts us, that we ought not to seek, neither can find salvation in anyone else 
than in Jesus. So come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Lay hold upon him and seek salvation from him. Put your trust in him and embrace him with a true and sincere faith as the one and only Savior, as the only name given under heaven among men whereby we may be saved. And now go and glory in that name. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, we give thanks to thee for proclaiming to us the name of thy Son, Jesus. What a wonderful name it is. What a glorious and powerful name. We thank thee for it. We thank thee for the faith to put our trust in him as our one and only Savior. And may thou grow that faith in our hearts that more and more we may find in him all things necessary, including comfort, joy, and rest, hope for eternal life, 